show yourself, fella? You murdered a policeman, Duke. Who said that? Duke! Who said that? Shut up! The weed of crime bears bitter fruit. I don't like this. This stinks. Let's get the hell out of here. Shut your hole, Maxie. Did you think you'd get away with it? Come on, Duke! <laughs> Did you think I wouldn't know? Hello and welcome back to Best Forgotten Movies, the podcast all about the films that time forgot. I'm Gareth Green and joining me as always is my full-time co-host and part-time femme fatale, Andrew Phillips. (sighs) And in the first episode of the new year, we're skulking in darkened alleyways in search of Russell Mulcahy's The Shadow. But in the darkness, will we find a film worthy of being called Best of the Forgotten? Or just two shagging dogs? Find out after the trailer. He was consumed by evil. For as long as you can remember, you've struggled against your own black heart. Shoot through him. Every man pays a price for redemption. I'm not looking for redemption. You have no choice. But I'll teach you to use your black shadow to fight evil. He became the shadow. If I didn't see anything, I swear. Dump him. <laughs> Who's there? Did you think you'd get away with it? Did you think I wouldn't know? <laughs> now, when the world is in danger, report. Police investigation of murder. Agent advises inquiry. Who knows what powers stir in the night? Whatever you did, it's in the past. Join me. Inside you beats a heart of darkness. I do what I do to fight back the evil inside me, but some part of it is still there, waiting. Genghis Khan conquered half of the world in his lifetime. I intend to finish the job. And when the adventure begins... Activate the bomb. Who knows where it will end? Alec Baldwin. John Lone. Penelope Ann Miller. Tim Curry. Who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men? <laughs> the Shadow. Alec Baldwin stars as Batman and Robin in Russell Mulcahy's 1994 pulp action film, The Shadow. Lamont Cranston is our titular hero, who by night patrols the streets of 1930s New York, striking fear into the hearts of the criminal underworld under the guise of the Shadow. But Cranston's grip on the city is weakened when a figure connected to his past challenges his powers. And with that, so begins the tale of Christopher Nolan's Batman Begins. In five minutes. (laughs) Yeah. Penelope Ann Miller, Ian McKellen, and John Lone also co-star in The Shadow of Tim Curry's effortless screen presence. So The Shadow was one of the first episodes that we actually thought of when we compiled our list of movies for best forgotten movies. Yeah. It was so high up on the list that we, in fact, included it on our poster. Yes. 
And yet, it's taken us this long, it's taken us 23 episodes to actually get round to covering it. Because we're pretty much going to do all of these pulp adaptations at some point. Yes. We just had to split them all up so we're not doing one every week. Yeah. As such. Although, what's happened, we've actually done two Russell Mulcahy films in the space of two months. So unfortunately, this is a, a very unlucky guy that's had the honour of having two films in this podcast series. <laughs> well, it still makes a change from doing another post-apocalyptic movie. Oh, definitely. Because we did go through a phase of not being able to get out of that. <laughs> no, no. So, I don't know. I, I can't remember who nominated The Shadow for Best Forgotten Movies. But I think I will hand it over to you to explain why it's been nominated. Yeah, in a way, I think we both nominated this one. Because yeah. it's... Um... I wouldn't say this is a film that's been part of my childhood because I don't think I actually saw it properly until I was about oh, 15 or something like that. Mm-hmm. But um, I just remember it being on the television and my dad watching it and him just going, this is a complete and utter tosh. <laughs> <laughs> but you still watched it anyway. And it was around the middle of the film that I caught it and it was just like, wow, this looks like a proper sort of Batman ripoff, really. Yeah, yeah. And then it wasn't until much later on when I was actually collecting these kinds of films that I watched the film in its entirety. And uh, yeah, it was pretty baffling. <laughs> See, I did actually grow up with this film. I watched it when it first came out on VHS. I think I had a copy of it as well. I remember it being on television as well quite yeah, a lot. Yeah. I remember it being one of those films that I actually caught randomly quite late one night. Mm. I mean, it might have been quite late then. I was only a kid. Yeah. And I remember really liking it. But over the years, obviously, I haven't returned to it as much as I probably should have. So this is another one of those episodes where will it stand up to that nostalgia <laughs> so that's how i'm going to be approaching this is does it stand up to how i used to view this film because it was very much part of the same genre i was interested in at that time which another film that it actually bears a striking resemblance to and we'll find out why later is sam raimi's dark man and that was another favorite of mine yes yeah. so i was very much into those type of films mm. like um, pulpy superhero films with dark superheroes at their center Mm. with conflicted characters but this has more than conflicted characters it has conflicted themes tones this is a conflicted (laughs) film yeah because it's dealing with these dark themes but trying to do it in a light way yes and it doesn't quite work yeah so all of our regular listeners know that here on best forgotten movies we like to provide a little bit of history of the films that we're covering just before we delve into what our opinions of them are So to start off with The Shadow, to go to the beginning where it actually originated, first off, we have to acknowledge that this character was created by Walter B. Gibson, I think in the 1930s. Mm. And it started off as uh, both a written series and a radio show. So I think it came out in pulpy books as well as being a radio show. Yeah, I think it originally started off as a narrator for something else and then turned into this character. Yeah, and then they had like a comic book series and a, a radio show that sort of existed side by side. Yeah. Yeah, and it was it was very popular, again, in the same way that The Phantom was around that time. Yeah. He was famously narrated or voiced by Orson Welles in the radio series. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, he did have a certain amount of notoriety at the time. But, again, we're talking back into the sort of 1930s and yeah. maybe early 40s. <laughs> and it was actually in 1982 when Martin Bergman bought the rights to The Shadow that studios actually and producers wanted to make a film of this particular character i think there was there had been a film out before like an old hollywood film 
It looks um, like there had been a couple because um, reading on the just the general buying of the character yeah. said that five films have been made, five including films, yeah. this film. So I'd, I'd seen think, a couple of posters yeah. of them when I was doing a little bit of research, mm. but I didn't actually delve into what those films were about, mm. which is something I probably should have done. Yeah. <laughs> it was bought by Martin Bergman in 1982, mm. and they intended to make a big-budget superhero movie. Weirdly enough, it actually predates Tim Burton's Batman in that way. Yeah. Because uh, Tim Burton's Batman came out in the late 80s. Was it 89? Yeah, 89, yeah. I mean, we've just said it ourselves, is that this film bears a striking resemblance to Tim Burton's Batman in so many ways, especially when dealing with the shadow character. But actually, this was intended to be made into a film long before Tim Burton's Batman actually came out. Yeah, it it sort of was very late for the party. Because this film really feels like a combination of Batman and Dick Tracy, which had already been out at the yeah, time. It, does. it really does feel like a combination of those two films. And um, it was only ever going to be looked at as being a rip-off. Yeah, as being derivative yeah. of those films. Yeah. There could have been things that could have saved it from being like that, but yeah. I think the direction that they took with the film ultimately caused it to be looked at in that way. Well, I think it was actually bought by this Martin Bergman producer, um, at one point, they in- intended to make whatever movie he did with it. And then those films came out and suddenly yeah. they saw it as an avenue to get The Shadow made. Yeah, And it makes sense because it wasn't until 1990 that they actually hired David Coep, who went on to write the film, mm. to uh, pen the screenplay. So in those eight years, nothing really much happened with The Shadow IP. Mm. It was just held by this Martin Bergman character. And it was only after Batman came out that suddenly there was interest in it. Yeah. And David Coop was a longtime fan of the show. He had grew up with it, as many people had, uh, um, as a radio show. So The Shadow was something that was actually quite close to him. And I have a quote from Martin Bergman as to the writing process and how many drafts that The Shadow went through with David Coop and really how hard it was for them to nail the tone. And just to quote him, he says, Bergman remembers... Some of the drafts were light, some of them were darker, and others were supposedly funnier, which he also says they weren't. (laughs) So (laughs) I think what he's saying is the drafts that were funnier weren't actually funny. Yeah. It kind of jarred against the character of the shadow. But he went on to acknowledge that it didn't work, and it took them quite a long time to really nail the shadow. And actually, I don't think they ever actually (laughs) did. Not really. Not really. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, that's the main problem with this film. (laughs) As this episode goes on, I'm sure that we're going to talk about this film as being another one of those pulpy films that feels a step out of time. Mm. It certainly feels like it's a much older Hollywood film than it is for the time that it was released. Yeah, because it's funny when you think about the kind of films that this opened up against when we start talking about when it was released. But when I saw what films it was being released around, it was like, whoa, these are films that don't feel that old in my mind yeah but then when i watch this film it's like oh shit it feels like i don't know i can't place it anywhere no other than being connected to all these other pulp ones it doesn't feel like it's a piece with anything else mm-hmm. but at the same time it's like they're trying to nail this character but because they're trying to appease fans of these other films that have come out and have proved popular it doesn't nail that character it doesn't do its yeah. own thing and one way that David Corp really wanted to differentiate itself from the likes of Batman and even Indiana Jones is by exploring the darker side of the shadow 
this is to use a quote from him. That's what he says. He wanted to explore the darkness of the shadow to make it feel yeah. like a different character. But Batman does deal with the darkness of Batman, the death of his parents. Yeah. But I guess that Tim Burton's Batman is, I really like it. I think it's a good film. But it is kind of goofy. And yeah. it is a little bit pulpy in that way also. In a way that embraces that. And yeah. Batman himself is a lot more kind of smarmy and uh, cocksure. And yeah. uh, he, he, he enjoys toying with these people, with these villains. Yeah, But I find it weird that in this way, and how he explains his original intentions of exploring the darkness of the shadow, that actually makes it sound on paper as being almost a little too early as a film. Yeah, Because yeah. it wasn't until, well, 9-11 that the face of movies really changed and suddenly superhero films became about exploring the, the darkness of superheroes. That's when christopher nolan's batman yeah really it's more to about take shape yeah and it became about exploring these grim dark elements of these characters and we've only just recently got out of that like within the past f- maybe four or five years yeah with the kind of boom of marvel films with those kind of films it tends to be more about the consequences yeah although i think we're going to be plunged back into that with this uh batman versus superman yeah <laughs> it seems it seems in that way that warner brothers and their take on dc yeah, is um, very much of the past, really. Yeah, that, that's still very much lost in that world. Yeah, but the thing is, they haven't got Christopher Nolan to guide them through that. No, world. yeah. So, in fact, going back to my dad calling it utter tosh, we did watch the trailer for it last night when we were watching Star Wars, and um, my dad just sent that film that's like utter tosh, and I was like, yeah, it probably is going to be utter tosh because <laughs> <laughs> that's another film that tells you exactly what's going on in the film. From oh, beginning yeah. to end. If you take the trailers that have actually been released and <laughs> laid them out flat, you've got the film beat for beat. Yeah, we don't need to see that film. Yeah. <laughs> close, I know this is closed book. <laughs> <laughs> I know this is a diversion. Well, it's within the superhero movie genre yeah. thing. But the whole thing about Batman vs Superman is that the film should be marketed around the idea of these two characters being at each other's throats and what is the thing that's gonna bring them together? What's the thing that's going to unite them? And now they've given us that. And there it doesn't look that great. <laughs> yeah. And now there's literally no reason to see the yeah. film. We've already been provided with the answer. Of yeah. course they're going to triumph because it's Superman and Batman. Yeah. And, and Wonder Woman. And it's a generic CGI monster that brings them together. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but returning to the shadow. Oh, joy. Yeah. Reading about David Corp talking about this character as being dark and troubled. It, uh, the film does play with that, but it doesn't delve into it all that much yeah Um, like the way that he talks about it feels like it's ahead of its time a little bit but actually in practice it's a lot goofier than he makes out yeah it's like there may have been another draft that he wrote that really dealt with all that but in the draft that they did use it's been really watered down yeah and um well we'll go into it in a minute but it's very much undermined by Mm -hmm. some of the choices that they've made to convey that aspect of his character yeah (laughs) somewhat that make it all the more ridiculous i would say there's only one place where it actually shines yes and i think we'll hold off talking about that in any detail until we actually start (laughs) talking about the film yeah okay so there's one other thing that we really have to talk about in terms of the build-up to the making of the shadow and that's that there was uh, somebody else that actually wanted to attain the rights to The Shadow. And it was, in fact, Sam Raimi. Mm. And I wanted to just ask, I mean, when I was a kid, I thought that The Shadow was a Sam Raimi-produced film. 
And that's part of the reason that I liked it, because I thought it was remarkably similar to Darkman. Mm. Even in execution. Yeah, but in that it's totally inconsistent. Yeah, and I wanted to ask... <laughs> yeah. I wanted to ask, did you feel any Sam Raimi influences? Well, yeah, I did in a way. We were talking about the dagger yes. and things like that. We were talking about, like, that's very Evil Dead-ish. Yeah, so it reminds and, me of Evil um, Dead 2, when the hand yeah. turns on Ash. Yeah. Uh, you've got this scene in the shadow with a dagger that has a mind of its own and it talks in a very similar way to ash's hand which mm. is all with these kind of high-pitched <laughs> noises yeah and uh, obviously all the swooping camera movements yes. and things like that i always knew that it was a a russell mulcahy film but it, yeah it was later that i learned that Raimi wanted to make the shadow as a film and then ended up not getting the rights and mm-hmm. making dark man instead which is very much a sort of homage slash yes. jumping off point from The Shadow. And a better film than The Shadow. Oh, yeah, I'd say. I mean, it's not a perfect film. No, 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 it's uh, not. It's uh, got some really jarring tonal shifts where it's really deadly serious at one point and then ridiculously goofy at other points. Yes, but it does lay the foundations for the type of superhero yeah. filmmaker that Sam Raimi was going to become and really was the start of a journey that led to him making one of the best superhero movies of all time, which is Spider-Man 2. And it yeah. still remains one of the best superhero movies of all time. Yeah. Okay, so back to the shadow once more. Oh, joy. <laughs> of joys. I actually have very little on the making of the film beyond this. It's fair to note that at some point, Russell Mulcahy was hired to direct the film. Yeah, yeah. And this was after, obviously, Highlander 2, The Quickening, and a series of other low-budget films that really didn't do much at the box office i think this was intended to reignite his dwindling career definitely you can really see that as it was meant to be a franchise and sort of coexist alongside all these new superhero films that were coming out yeah i think that's this is what it was meant to do and unfortunately again didn't happen for him in a way i think this is the one that really killed his career yeah and he's a real almost filmmaker. Like, yeah. he almost did it. He almost graduated to the big leagues, to the real big budget films. Yeah. And each time it actually came to the crunch, his films faltered for whatever reason. Mm. And I think it, like, kind of encapsulated by the fact that the best movie he's made in terms of box office performance is probably Resident Evil Extinction. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And that says everything, really. Mm. Which is a shame, because he does have a rather solid visual eye. Mm. And he does have a lot of good visual ideas. And I guess that comes from his music video background. Yeah, it's just unfortunately that the material that he's given is not always uh, really up to scratch. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, he's yet another one of these directors that has a keen visual sense, and he's very solid technically, but the kind of stuff that he's given to work with really isn't that great at all. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think you've got to ask as well is, I think he knows how to tell a story, mm. but I don't think he knows a good story. No. Uh, well, he when he sees it. No. Or he wouldn't have done some of these films. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, could have gone, you would have read the script and gone, uh, nah, needs yes. a lot of work. Yeah. A lot of work. The thing that a lot of these pulp adaptations seem to have in common with one another is that they're all incredibly slight. Yes. They don't get deep into anything. And they always leave you with the sense of, oh, we've just got going. Now we've finished the film. Mm-hmm. They're all really unsatisfying in that way. I find it strange that all of these films were really made because of the success of Batman. Mm. 
And yet, I get the feeling that studios have really misunderstood why Batman succeeded. And I think it was because it embraced more of its comic booky elements. And because of the type of comic book it was based on. Batman was very much back in the public eye because of the success of Frank Miller's series. Mm. Yet, studios seem to have taken from that, that audiences want to see more pulpy heroes from the 1930s and 40s, mm. re-envisioned on screen in the 90s. And so we ended up with films like The Shadow and The Phantom and The Rocketeer, which I, I love The Rocketeer, mm. but it kind of fits that mold as well. Yeah, yeah. And I'm left wondering why, when you've especially got an entire catalogue of DC characters that are currently very popular yeah. with comic book readers. It's strange that they looked completely in the opposite direction so far back into the past. Okay, so we've said everything we can do, really, about the context. We've yeah. talked about what superhero films were at the time. Uh, we've talked about it even in other episodes. Yeah. So now let's just get into the film. Let's get into the shadow. Let's examine our shadows. So, Andy. Yeah. What did you think of Russell Mulcahy's The Shadow? <laughs> that good? <laughs> you didn't have to drop your pants. <laughs> That's what I thought of it. Okay. It's concise, <laughs> to the point, interesting, enjoyable. And, it, and it's audio, so yeah. yeah. I think the really interesting thing now to note, especially given the passage of time and uh, what's happened since in terms of some of the actors involved in this film. Yeah. It's almost quite incredible how wasted some actors are in this film. Oh, definitely. I know which actor you are speaking of in particular. Yes. I, it's going to be Ian McKellen. Yes. It's definitely going to be Ian McKellen. Yes. Yeah, he's very wasted in this film. <laughs> he does look like he's just there to be the bumbling professor character. Yes. And um, he spends most of the film hypnotized. And colorblind. <laughs> yeah, he does. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, that's probably the only thing about his character that we are privy to. He has no character other than no, the fact no, that he's he just is there colorblind. to be absent-minded and colorblind. Yeah, <laughs> and he probably has about five minutes of screen time in the yeah. whole film, which begs the question: Why cast Ian McKellen in that role? I guess Ian McKellen at that point wasn't at the point he is now. No, it's weird to think because again, just a few years down the line, he's cast. In both Lord of the Rings and X Men, mm. he becomes a star essentially. Yeah, well, and especially in terms of American cinema. Yes, one of our finest thesps. Yeah, wasted on this role. Yeah, I mean, there's some other ones as well. You've got Peter Boyle playing a, a nothing character. Really, he's just yeah. there as the sidekick. He's reprising his role from Taxi Driver <laughs> in this film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's essentially the guy that just ferries uh, yeah. the shadow from place to place. Mm. And uh, we don't really get any kind of inkling to his backstory apart from one scene where he's at home. But yeah, it would be nice to explore some of the lives of these people that he saved and are sort of indebted to him. Almost like press ganged into being in his service in a way. Because yeah. there's a kind of slightly dark edge. There is, because he has saved their lives, but now they are slaves to his will. <laughs> I almost imagine there's a scene from some other place in where the shadow's gone, I helped you across the road. <laughs> I saved your life. You are now indebted to me. It's like, he's, like, he's that desperate yeah, now for yeah. people. That it's just a... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I envisaged that car from half a mile away <laughs> that could have hit you. <laughs> Wear this ring. <laughs> Put it on. You are part of my man's club. <laughs> Meet me in the Turkish bathhouse for further <laughs> instructions. 
and I'll wear my special nails. Because <laughs> that's the other thing in this <laughs> yeah, film. Yeah, yeah. Uh, strange nails. Uh, there's so many weird choices that they made with this film, but I actually watched this film today on the uh, premise that Lamont Cranston was gay, and it was very fun viewing indeed. Because <laughs> um, there's so many things that are explained by it. Yeah, well, he is, strangely enough, a very um, sexless character when yes, it comes to definitely. the opposite sex. Mm. So I like the idea of the Shadow being America's first gay superhero. <laughs> that sounds great to me. You know, he's got his followers of all these guys that wear his rings. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so what other jewels are there in this cast? We've also got Penelope Ann Miller as the Shadow's love interest. Yep. Who is rather underused, really. I yeah. quite like Penelope Ann Miller. I think she's just coming off Carlito's way. Yeah, actually. she did Carlito's way. She'd done um, was it Awakenings as well. I think so. Mm. Yeah, and I think she went on to be in The Relic. Yeah, which is a film that I've always wanted to do for Best Forgotten Movies, but <laughs> we're not quite sure if we'll get any views for that one, mm. any listeners. But um, I'd really like to do the relic. We'll see, yeah. But she's really given nothing to do. I mean, there's a couple of bits yeah. and pieces to her character, but they're not played on at all. Because I do think that her and Alec Baldwin do bounce off each other every now and again. You get mm. a, like, a little glimpse of chemistry. But then the script kind of abandons. It shies away from it. Yeah, it does. And there's this quirk to her character in that she is, uh, I almost said psychotic, <laughs> is that she's psychic. Yeah. And um, she can read the shadow's mind, which he is scared of because then she will be able to see his past as a ruthless warlord. Yeah. <laughs> and drug baron. I mean, we do need to talk about Alec Baldwin, really, in this film. Yeah. I think it's the other thing we've been skirting around. Yeah. I think you mentioned it before. He's got the physique of a um, later <laughs> age Sean Connery in yeah. this film. It's that he definitely feels like he has a physique of the past. Yeah, this is just before Alec Baldwin started his chubby phase. Yes. And you can just about see it starting. He yeah. was obviously eating a bit too much of... Uh, he looks the, full-bodied. Uh, yeah, he, he's got a bit of a chin on him, and uh, he's probably been eating a bit too much food catering. As a larger guy myself, I like to see people <laughs> of larger frames portrayed in such glamorous ways. Yes, of course. <laughs> But for someone that does as much training as he does, he doesn't seem to have a physique that represents that or shows it off in any way. No, there's a lot of like uh, what looks like a girdle may have been involved <laughs> yeah. or something like that because he's even when he's in his uh, dark phase, mm-hmm. he's wearing this big robe and he's kind of not seen from the chest down. Yeah, like he's his gone belly's, full his Marlon belly's Brando been, yeah. in Apocalypse Now. <laughs> his belly's been wrapped up quite tightly <laughs> to keep everything inside. Yeah. At the end of the day, I, I like Alec Baldwin. I like Alec Baldwin in this film. Yeah. Any issues that I have really have to do with the script itself and the, the way that the character is portrayed yeah. in the script. Because, uh, yeah, yeah, I think he's good. He, he kind of nails that duality of being the shadow and being a playboy, much in the same way that the Batman character has as well. They're obviously playing with those same themes. Oh, it's, it's another one of those films where this is a property that the original Batman comic took inspiration from. But because the film itself has been made in the wake of Batman, Mm. it feels like a rip-off. Yeah. So the whole Playboy elements of the character, the kind of secret identity and double life. And weirdly enough as well, I don't know if this is actually in the original comic, but even has a relationship with the commissioner. Yeah. And it does feel like Alec Baldwin's actually taking this role because I think he may have passed on the Bruce Wayne role in Mm. Tim Burton's Batman. It's almost like... 
yeah. regret from that. Yeah. At the same time, there's not as much depth, and he's not really given much to do. Mm-hmm. There's very little that he actually does in the film. Well, to talk about the story for a second, it does set up the character initially as being a ruthless murderer. Yeah. And that feels completely at odds with who the character is for the rest of the film. We never get a sense that there's an unpredictability about him, that there's an anger in him, that there's a rage, and there's this warlord inside of him, and that he's teetering on the edge of emotional breakdown at all points. He could easily become that other person. And it's clearly something that David Co-op has talked about in terms of that character having that duality and that conflict within him and those darker elements. But the film doesn't actually play on that whatsoever. No. You're always in the mindset that he's basically a good guy now. Yes. And there's not really going to be anything that's going to tip him in any other direction. So it does nothing with the character because it's just not very exciting in that sense. No. There's a couple of moments where they almost do something with it. It's like they toy with the idea of doing something with it. Mm. Like, for instance, there's a dream sequence, a fair way into the film, where Lamont Cranston is dreaming of tearing his own face off to reveal... The bad guy within him. Mm. And it's like, that's that's great. Yeah. That stuff's fucking excellent. Why isn't a film about that? Why isn't <laughs> why isn't the character like that when he's awake? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Cause the main problem with not doing any of that kind of stuff, there's no low point for the character. No. There's no point where he's at his lowest point and he needs to redeem himself again to yeah. overcome those demons. It's just incidental. They almost set it up. And that is with the Penelope Ann Miller character, Margot Lane. They almost set it up with her because for a while you think her arc is going to be, she wants to find out who the shadow is and what this uh, Lamont Cranston is, uh, alter ego. She wants to know what his past is because she recognizes there's something or senses there's something iffy about this individual there's something interesting about him there's something dark about him and she can see into him and she's like the only one apart from the villain that he can't manipulate and for the longest time the film builds it up as oh gosh what happens if she finds out he used to be a warlord that he murdered so many people Mm. i mean he has visions of his face covered in blood while he's Mm. killing people and he's so scared of her seeing that and then we get to that point where she sees it and she's not repulsed or turned away by it she in fact just says Oh, that's who you are. It's not who you are now. Yeah. And then the film continues. Yeah. It's all right. It was all as in normal. the past. Yeah. It's like she sees it and then the next <laughs> scene she goes, oh, it's, it's in the past. Yeah. Which, again, it renders all the buildup entirely pointless. Shouldn't the film have been about her finding out what his past was and being utterly disgusted by that and repelled? And then she goes on to realize that that's who he was, but not who he is now as the film goes on. I mean, it should have been his lowest point when she finds out and leaves him. Instead, she has no arc as a result. No. Her arc is, she wants to find out what his past is, she finds it out, the end. She's not even a damsel in distress. No, no, she isn't. <laughs> she's very capable in that she, way. She's she very capable even, yeah, in the film. but there's no other narrative point to her character no. other than that she's the female lead I mean, and we need a female lead in this film. I say she's capable. She's not even that capable because she keeps saying, oh, I need you to help me find my dad and is it a dad it's a dad isn't it yeah Ian McCallan's yeah, a, a dad. dad yeah so I still think of Ian McCallan as Gandalf the Grey yeah, as yeah. being impossibly ancient which he is not <laughs> uh, in but this film then other times she's like I've got my vagina spread wide for you Lamont. yeah oh that's thing. so weird it's like but all the meanwhile her father's yeah. still missing she knows that in her great danger. dad has possibly <laughs> been kidnapped so during this time 
that she should be searching for him. She instead decides that she's going to seduce. Yeah. Um, I almost called him Brian Cranston. <laughs> Brian Cranston. <laughs> I'm going to start calling him Brian Cranston from now on. Oh, if the shadow was played by Brian Cranston. <laughs> oh, it'd be great. <laughs> oh, the shadow makes meth. I want to see that film. <laughs> That's why people can't see him. Yeah. So fucking up the tits. <laughs> Maybe that's what Ian McKellen's character was actually making in that lab. Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Maybe that's why he couldn't <laughs> see colours. Yeah. <laughs> All the while, she's just going, oh, take me, take me. And oh, my father, yes. Oh, we also have to find my father at some yeah, point, yeah, but yeah. take me, take me. Yeah, but look at me, I'm in this nice dress. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's so weird. It is. It's almost like they want her to be a femme fatale as well. Like, she's got the element of... Um, dangerous seduction about her you know yeah but she has no agenda but that's it yeah exactly she's not bad or villainous or has any of that in her whatsoever no but they just want somebody to really in their kind of fantasy film noir they want somebody to occupy the red lips Mm. that these films must have but yeah it just ultimately comes off as hollow yeah and going back to the story i think we have to start at the beginning a little bit once more so the film starts with the introduction of lamont cranston who is is it in Tibet or something? Yeah, it's he's like in a Tibet. Tibetan poppy field, and this is uh, post World War One. Yeah, and he is in a Tibetan poppy field, and he's a warlord now. And I think he's a drug baron. He's mm. making heroin, I think, or opium. I guess yeah, at this yeah. point. And we are introduced to him as a what would you call him? Yeah, he's going through his eighties hair metal face. <laughs> he is. Yeah, he looks like an extra from Rocky Horror Picture Show. <laughs> I think he's just what straight off velvet gold mine. <laughs> but yeah, we're introduced to him doing very bad things. He's killing people. He kills his own people rather mercilessly. Yeah, he kills James Hong. Yes, he does. Who is from a warring clan yeah. or group or gang. Yeah. And he kills his own man in order to kill James Hong. Mm. But James Hong, someone to use in this film. James I mean, Hong seems is... to be doing these little bit parts all, maybe all that's what he the lo- 90s. Maybe that's what he, he likes to do. He know? must have done like a film a week yeah. <laughs> during that time. Was, I need to look at his filmography. He must have done like 3,000 films because he's done all these little parts. Yeah, he, he gets bumped off very, very quickly. Very early, yeah. He's yeah. in it for about 30 seconds. Yeah. And this is the part of the film where we talk in literally, this is Batman Begins, the first half of Batman Begins done in seven minutes. Yes, it is. It really is. It's an entire, <laughs> like, it's two acts of a film yeah. within the space of 10 minutes. And a scroll. If, yeah, and a scroll. <laughs> I mean, we need to get to that scroll. Yeah. That's what I'm trying to build up to right now. <laughs> so, Cranston is kidnapped by who he thinks is the Warren group in retaliation mm. for killing James Hong. The great James Hong, may he rest in peace with Bruce Willis. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, we know he's not dead, <laughs> no. but his character is. Yeah. Um, and it's there he meets this mysterious individual, his essentially his Obi-Wan, who's going to teach him how to become the Shadow and redeem himself for being a murderous bastard. Yeah, the uh, Tulku, or Last Splinter Airbender, as I like to call him. <laughs> but yeah, we get this whole business with the knife. Yeah. Again, it's very Evil Dead 2-esque, but there's this knife that has a mind of its own and a little tiny face on it. Uh, like, say, it makes noises like... Bleh, bleh, as it chases yeah. them around the room in a very comedic fashion yeah <laughs> like say it can fly as well for some reason what is that knife it's magical knife trademarks it's a kind of magic did you yeah, is that, yeah. yeah. Mm. another little shout out to, mm, rather know. glad the magic works <laughs> so and then what follows is well first off the shadow is told 
Am uh, I in hell? Yeah, he says, am I in hell? And he says... Not uh, yet. Yeah. You will be. You will be. Sorry, that's my <laughs> dark Yoda. Uh, mm. <laughs> then we get to this scroll, which yes. is quite possibly one of the oddest things I've ever seen in any film. I actually wrote in my notes, was one of the first things I wrote was worst scroll ever. <laughs> yeah. In a very kind of comic book guy way. I think I just wrote weirdest transition ever. <laughs> But it's like this scroll suddenly comes up after what is essentially... The opening title sequence. Yeah. And the scroll says, Cranston spent the next seven years becoming the Shadow and then returned to New York to rid it of its crime. But we're not going to show you because we've run out of money. (laughs) That's it. Why aren't we being shown this? Even in a montage or something (laughs) like that. Maybe this is where the title should have gone, where we get to see him slowly become the Shadow over time and learn his craft. Why isn't the film about that? They would have had to have gone to Tibet for longer. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't even know if there are any deleted scenes in this section. Yeah. Whether they had any editorial problems or problems with the studio wanting the film to be a certain length. Yeah. And, and whether this is literally just a last-ditch attempt that was tacked on at the end. We don't know. I feel like... I mean, even if it wasn't there, I would still go, Eh? Suddenly, why are we jumping this far ahead? Because it does come up with seven years later. Mm. But... I would probably just go, okay, he's become the shadow and get over that. But because they add this scroll, almost it's almost like they may have well just put a black screen up with the title saying scene missing and then just skip straight ahead. Yeah, because if they were going to do that, it would have been better just to start in New York and then work backwards. Y- yes, it would have. Yeah, to maybe put us as the audience in the Penelope Ann Miller role of trying to find out what it is that he's so scared of her finding out about himself. Yeah. Make it a mystery. Yeah, and then also you have the compelling with any superhero as well, especially with ones that aren't just like mutations. The reason why they're like this and why they're doing this, what's brought them on to be this vigilante character. Exactly. And giving you it up front. And we, we found the same thing with the Phantom as well. Giving it all up front does you no favours because it ultimately makes the whole film very boring. Yeah. And it, in this it, context boring and disjointed yeah it robs your main character of mystique yeah i mean they've essentially got nothing interesting about them because we know everything we have to know again the film does go on to play on this whole idea that his past is coming back to haunt him in some way with our main villain who is not genghis khan (laughs) not not genghis khan is shiwan khan who is one of genghis khan's ancestors um ancestors is that the word yeah no it, ancestors is backwards isn't it <laughs> yeah so yeah i don't know why they didn't just go with genghis khan why, why isn't he just because it's like khan, saying yeah. hi i'm larry hitler <laughs> <laughs> so, like, oh, i would love to see that film yeah you know i mean i would love to see it do you think we will get films like that in like maybe don't a few hundred years time <laughs> it's ultimately who, the who same thing evil figure that wants to take over the world and kill us all Ha! I am Jeffrey Hitler. <laughs> yes! Last descendant <laughs> of the Hitlers and the Browns. <laughs> but, uh, why not just make him... Because they kind of try and set up that there's this mysterious thing going on with a coffin, but then that doesn't go anywhere anyway, because it seems as if this character's contemporary anyway. Yeah, he, he took over a fucking hotel. Yeah. Why does he have to arrive in a coffin? Why doesn't he just get a fucking plane? <laughs> Why does he have to have this entrance where he just appears in the middle of the city in a coffin that's been delivered to the museum? Yeah. When he uh, he could have just took normal transportation like everybody else. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's absolutely 
bonkers. Yeah. And where do his followers come from? I don't know. They just, they appear, just appear out of nowhere. And they're all dressed in like Genghis Khan garb. Well, I'm presuming, like garb. I'm presuming they're the guys that delivered the coffin in the first place. Because obviously this is one of those things where it's a, oh, we weren't expecting this delivery. Oh, yeah. but it's great anyway. Let's open it up. Um, <laughs> however, this does open up one of the best parts of the whole film for me, which is this guy's power. Because this guy can make anybody do anything. And because he he is literally like the dark flip side of the shadow. Yes, he is. In terms of what and he does. But I like what he does. Works. Because instead of influencing people for the good, which is what the shadow does, yes. he basically influences people to kill themselves. Yeah, in a whole manner of ways. Yeah. Whether or not he's shooting themselves in the head. Or my favorite one is the man who jumps off the Empire State yeah. building. Against uh, his own will. He's like, what own- am I doing? What am I doing? Oh, <laughs> Stop my God. me, guys. Stop me. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, I love how it's used. Him falling from the building is used as a transition into a scene with the shadow. Yeah. Like of him just walking down the street in the the foreground as this guy falls in the background. Yeah. But the thing is, I love how some of the reasons for him doing it are so limp as well. Because it's like, someone calls him a funny name. You're dead. Yeah. Sort of thing. It's like, (laughs) I think the guy who fell off the Empire State Building called him Toots. Yeah. And he does sort of... Oh, he definitely has, like, little dick syndrome. Yeah. Oh, definitely, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's where the film works for me, is, um, I mean, his character feels kind of out of place in this film noir world, but the film is so utterly bonkers and anachronistic anyway that, uh, you know, if you throw enough of these things in, okay, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt that this is a more stylized take on a yeah. superhero film it's not trying to be man of steel or anything like that yeah it's more like sin city yeah because in a weird way that whole character and everything that surrounded him reminded me more of the the early live action teenage mutant ninja turtles rather yeah. than something film noir yeah so it seemed more like something that the shredder would do yeah it does yeah and um, and uh yeah unfortunately no matter how good a performance that john lennon was putting it in he was totally undermined by his rather fake looking beard and mustache yeah it is <laughs> which i didn't think was necessary <laughs> there's an episode of beavis and butthead where <laughs> they are so kind of distraught by the fact that they can't grow facial hair <laughs> that they cut off each other's pubes <laughs> and glue them to the face and it looks horrific <laughs> but they think it looks great and that is what this film reminded yeah. me of, like, straight away. Especially when he's got, like, food in it and bits. <laughs> and he's just like, oh, mate, just let it go. Just <laughs> let it go. Rip it off. <laughs> oh. Just imagine, like, food in his pubes. <laughs> <laughs> Why? I haven't got the best beard. I can't really, I can't really say much, but it is shockingly pube-like. You can almost see the spirit gum as well. You can, <laughs> that that's it, thing. yeah. Especially on Blu-ray, I could really oh, tell. Yeah. Oh, and especially when it came to the shadow himself and his prosthetics, you can see the fake eyelashes. Oh, uh, you can see uh, the eyebrows, mesh. Eyebrows you can, you see, can actually the I mean, see the mesh. Even on the really shitty DVD version that I watched, mm. you can see the mesh on his eyebrows and things like that. I mean, talking about the filmmaking for a second, could you tell in, on the DVD version that... Could you see the obvious backdrop when they were on the bridge at the beginning, when the shadow reveals himself to the mobsters. Oh, yeah. And it's like a foggy bridge. Because I watched it on Blu-ray, and the pictures, it's great. It's a great-looking picture, Mm. but it doesn't hide any sins. No. It reveals them. (laughs) And there's obviously a backdrop behind them that is lit, and it's made to look like the rest of the bridge leading to New York City. And it's clearly just a backdrop. 
So much so that you can actually see it moving and you can actually see the line where it meets the ground. Uh. And I used to love that scene. And watching it back, I was like, I can't, I couldn't stop looking <laughs> at the obvious backdrop. Yeah. It needed more like fog. But I can't help but wonder, geez, what did this look like on a big screen when it first came out? Yeah. And I bet that was like clear as day. But at the same time, it kind of made the film feel... I don't want to use it as a, an example of how terrible the film is because I don't really think it's that bad. Because it endeared me a little that, oh, they built this set. Yeah. And um, the set itself looks great. Mm. And, okay, sure, that doesn't look real. But it still looks like it's a part of that world in some yeah, kind of yeah. ramshackle way. Yeah. I don't know. I always find those kind of effects, even when they fail, if I see the intention in it, I don't mm. mind. I still find them endearing. I think, in a way, that that scene's just very much undermined by the uh, the Cartian gangsters. Yes, uh, they're very much like cardboard cutout gangsters. They are, but I'm also like, I wish the film was more about gangsters. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it was more of a kind of uh, like an old Hollywood gangster film with the shadow at the center. Yeah, because I do love the stuff with Shiwan Khan in terms of his performance and what's going on with him and the shadow and that he does represent who the shadow could have become mm. who lamont cranston could have grew into and that does seem to haunt him through the film that's why you have the dream of ripping off his face to reveal yeah she won calm beneath but at the same time it's like that is kind of so out of place with the rest of the film i mean i can just about justify it being there but i'd rather it be about like more like cops and robbers more like gangsters yeah. more like saving the city from itself kind of thing and i guess i'm getting more into batman by saying that yeah i think we're getting more into later batman as well yeah. whereas at this point it was about having mystical villains and in a weird way it's like yeah they're trying to tread that line again because they're like you know right yeah batman's popular turtles were popular asian film culture was coming into play yeah, in, in like the, the 90s yeah. yeah and um i think they were trying to cater for everybody again this is one of these films where they're trying to cater for everything and then again yeah. it doesn't have its own identity no, it doesn't. It doesn't. You're absolutely right. It's trying to be everything. It's trying to be... A, it's a jack of all trades, but a master yeah. of none. Yeah, definitely. I think the other thing we've got to talk about in relation to this opening sequence in New York yeah. is uh, this is the first time we see the shadow as the shadow. It is, yeah. And uh, here we get Alec Baldwin playing Serrano de Bergerac. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm not quite sure what's going on here with the whole identity thing. <laughs> Yeah, I am very confused about both what he's doing mm. with this identity. Is he changing the way he looks to other people, or is he actually physically yeah. changing the way that he looks? Because I'm pretty sure, and anybody who's obviously knows more about the Shadow as a character than we do can probably shoot us down on this one, but I'm pretty sure the whole idea of him changing his appearance to that look is not in any of the other reference material. Mm -hmm. I think it's one of those things where they purely wanted to make him look like the comic book character. Yes. And this was their way of doing that. Actually, thinking about it as well, it has to be a change that's happening physically because at one point in the film, we do see it from an objective point of view when he's on his own mm. and his face does change. He changes himself to become the shadow. Mm. We're not seeing it from anybody's point of view. The camera is being an objective viewpoint. Yeah. So he is. this is a physical change that's happening, which leads me to ask the question, why if he can change how he looks, including like the structure of his face, does he then wear a scarf or bandana around mm. half his face to kind of conceal himself because he looks like nobody? Yeah. 
and I think this is where they've gone down a certain way to try and make him look like a character in the comic books, but created more problems because obviously in the comic books and the radio series, yeah, he would just be wearing a scarf around his yes, face. Yes, it's like a scarf to cover his identity, the, lo- lower half, which of his face. would make sense. Cause yeah, it's more like a sort of uh, almost like a Western hold-up situation, it is. like yeah, um, it is, or like um, highwayman. Like it's like a, very much like a highwayman look. It is, yeah, but adding this extra element, which I'm I'm really really sure isn't in any of the other depictions of the shadow other than this film it doesn't make any sense and it's not it's a very odd decision to do that it seems very unnecessary yeah i do wonder where that idea originated if it didn't with mm. the original ip really yeah because it's one of those things that it, it baffles me because if you're hiring alec baldwin to play this character yeah. why get rid of alec baldwin mm-hmm. because at that point when he becomes the shadow because he puts on almost like a different voice mm-hmm. and looks different it's almost like you've lost Alec Baldwin there. Yeah, he's still got Alec Baldwin's eyes, but to me, the shadow actually resembled William Baldwin more. Yeah. <laughs> who yeah. we know from Virus. Mm. It does baffle me, even the internal logic mm. as to why it's happening. No. A man who can change his face doesn't need to hide his identity. Yeah, but he's only changing it into one face. Because <laughs> if you were going to do that, you would change it to different identities each time. Yeah. Very much like Darkman. Exactly, there we go. Um, I wonder if that is something that is originated with Darkman. Because, again, this film does feel like it's intended to be a cinematic soulmate to Darkman. Because Darkman came out and it was something of a success. It went straight to number one, even though it's lesser known now, Mm. really. It's more of a cult film. Yeah, yeah. So I actually think maybe... More so than Batman, they've looked towards Darkman as an inspiration. Maybe, which is weird, seeing as cycles going on. It is. And at the same time, you think, if they're looking at Darkman for an inspiration, Sam Raimi wants to make The Shadow. Yeah. He is still interested in it now. He talked about it only three or four years ago. Yeah. And tried to make it into a film once more. And he should have just given him yeah, the film. Yeah, it's, it's almost like a life pursuit for him, and they keep not giving it him, which is yeah. weird, because you need to give things like that to people who are passionate about it, especially yes. if it's really obscure, because yeah. they can make something really special out of it, and not to give it to them is really foolish. It is. but um, Especially when you've got a talent like Sam Raimi. Yeah. I mean, especially in today's climate, when every single superhero is coming out of the woodwork. Yeah. Sort of thing. To do something like that would actually be quite refreshing, because it'd be different. Yeah, it would be. Yeah. I think it would actually fit in with the current trend of superheroes as well, because like you say, you've got so many different superhero properties coming out of the woodwork, which means you've got so many different kind of superhero stories and different genres at work. Mm. And yet this one's still untapped, mm. really, the um, the pulp film. They tried to make a comeback in the early 90s with the list of films that we reeled off, and none of them really quite worked other than, well, The Rocketeer, and mm. I think Darkman's just pulpy enough as well. Maybe this is the time for Pulp to actually make something of a comeback. Yeah, and um, for some weird reason as well, the Shadow's voice, Alec Baldwin seems to be doing Trailer Man voice. Yes, he does. In a world the Shadow knows. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it is like just really generic trailer voice. There's not this, are they going for Batman? Then again, like even Batman just spoke. Yeah, he kind of just spoke more normally. Yeah, exactly. He just spoke like Michael Keaton. We were before the Christian Bale era. Yeah, we were before, where are the other drugs going? <laughs> <laughs> like trying to do like sort of Sylvester Stallone impression. <laughs> <laughs> what? 
I've just noticed I've got the word Peking duck written in my notes. I just put <laughs> Peking duck? <laughs> Question mark. Wink, wink. Because there's some really odd lines in this film. Like, yeah, there is. I actually wrote one down myself. I'm just looking like, for my notes. The, the film's there. idea of a romantic chat line, would you fancy some Peking duck? <laughs> it's like... <laughs> Oh, of course, yeah, that yeah. is. She's like, I was just thinking about that. Yeah. Maybe this was like a Chinese restaurant boom. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> oh, yeah, this is the famous 90s Chinese restaurant boom. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's the thing. There are lots of 90s things that keep creeping in. There are, this yeah. film, like we were talking about this, uh, the scene that immediately follows the opening New York scene is the scene in the Cobalt Club. Yes. Where we get two things, really. We have the, the idea of... Um, Lamont's mind powers, which is very, um, these aren't the droids you're looking for. Yeah, they are. Which I imagine, yeah, is definitely one of the original ones mm-hmm. that's been maybe used in Star Wars. Yeah, I think it's something George Lucas cribbed from. And it's another shadow. one of those things that looks like a ripoff now because it's come later yes. in the film anyway. But yeah, we get this weird thing where this is quite an upmarket club, like a dinner club. Yeah, it reminds me of the club from the beginning of Temple of Doom. Yeah, and a bit like the one in The Aviator as well. Yes, yes, it yeah. does, yeah. And we have all the music. It seems to be everything present and correct. <laughs> yes. And then all of a sudden when we get to the uh, romantic scene with him and Margot, yeah. we suddenly get a bit of Kenny G creeping in. <laughs> yeah, we do. Like, yeah. <laughs> Kenny G soprano sax coming on. And I'm like, this isn't 1930s. <laughs> and Kenny then G! The, the camera just slowly pans to Garth. <laughs> yeah. Garth Algar just sat, sat in the club in a dentist chair <laughs> having his teeth drilled out. <laughs> but it is strange because this film does have all these anachronisms and not all of them gel together as well as you want them to. But I think the one that jars most with me, even more so like we were talking about than this Genghis Khan character, Descendant, who very much feels like a relic of the past anyway, mm being in this film noir yeah. uh, film. I think from a filmmaking point of view, it's Jerry Goldsmith's score, surprisingly, that really, really doesn't fit for me. Mm. And it's because it has this electronic beat going on through the main theme. And I don't know, I I love Jerry Goldsmith. He's He was one of my favourite composers and his music still remains some of my favourite film music. Mm. But this score in particular, I would say, is not his strongest. No. It jars with the film, and when I see a film like this, I want to, I want to hear classic Hollywood. You know, I, I, I want to hear film noir. Yeah, I feel like this score and the one that actually, in a weird way, Danny Elfman did for Dick Tracy, when that one obviously very much aping off his own score, that were very much directly influenced by Danny Elfman's music for Batman. Yeah, like I remember even when I first saw that yeah, clip of it on right. the TV. It felt like, oh, they're really trying to replicate that feeling. It those is, yeah. themes and um, the, the instrumentation as well. It wouldn't surprise me if this was a film that was temp-tracked to Danny Elfman's Batman score. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, like we say, it's cribbed so many other things from mm. Tim Burton's Batman. I wouldn't be surprised if the score was one of them. Mm. I like The Shadow as a film. Mm. I think it does enough right for it to be enjoyable of the moment. It's when I start sitting back and thinking about what's actually happened that I start Mm. to question it. Like, what? No, that doesn't make any sense. That doesn't make sense. And suddenly they add up and add up and then suddenly the film falls apart. 
because yeah, I like the characters, even though the script doesn't do enough of them. I like a lot of Russell Mulcahy's direction, even though it feels like it's aping Sam Raimi. I like the sets, mm. even though a couple of them don't hold together well enough. It's like, yeah, it's it's a very uh, it's a very much a close but no cigar film, really. It's uh, it's almost there, but there's a lot of things that are just holding it back from being even just good, really. Yeah. Um. Because, yeah, there are some great individual moments. Like, we haven't really talked about uh, Tim Curry's character yet. Oh, my gosh. I mentioned him in the intro, and I can't <laughs> believe that it's taken us this long to actually get around to his character, who is the saving grace of the entire film, really. He's the, <laughs> he's the element that shines above everything else. And there are elements that I really like, but it's Tim motherfucking Curry. Yeah, and it's a shame he's not in it more, because he's yeah. really in it for about 10 minutes. Yes, he is. <laughs> but he makes such an impact. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he's so weaselly and smarmy yeah. and oh I, I, you know tim curry is a guy who um when he smiles it makes me feel like i need a shower because <laughs> <laughs> he, he knows how to really make this kind of sexual creeps you know mm. he, he plays them quite well there's always that element to him and it's weird this is a man i guess he's known for playing one of the most famous bisexuals ever put to screen mm, yeah really <laughs> there is always something about Tim Curry, where he embraces the creepy sexual sides of his characters, especially during this 90s phase when yeah, it was just yeah. kind of hired to be a kind of weaselly creep. Yeah, although for me, I think his ultimate sexual character, even more so than Rocky Horror, will always be, for me, darkness in legend. Oh my gosh, yes. That, that, for me, is the definitive Tim Curry performance. It is, and it's strange because he is completely unrecognisable yeah. in that role, and yet that performance is unmistakably yeah. Tim Curry. And it's not talked about near enough because it is extraordinary. I mean, no. the combination of him and the makeup is just extraordinary. Even now, it's one of those things where you just go, oh, there's a person inside of there. It's just, it's a fully-fledged character, mm-hmm. and it's just uh, scary as fuck. <laughs> yeah it is it's it scary is. beyond all reason and listeners before you send us all of your emails telling us that this is a film we should do we already know yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's on the list it's on the list but um yeah i just love how uh weasley and like almost childlike he is cause yeah when, he, when he's um goading on ian mckelling is like he's like taunting him like yeah. a child on a school ground yeah, yeah, yeah. um like i have the vision to do this yeah. i'm better than you <laughs> nah, 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 nah. and there's something manic about his character yeah as i well. love i love that i think the best bit of that character though is the bit where uh, the shadow has him cornered in the ballroom yes and he's just completely lost it and he's got his gun it calls him a coward and everything like that. Yeah. And he sort of wants him to come out of the shadows and fight him like a man. That's the one point where the shadow actually turns a little bit bad. Yeah. Because that's the one character that you've got to say he straight up murders. And uh, what he does is he makes Tim Curry think that a window is an exit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so he jumps out the window and uh, falls to his death. Which, I mean, that makes the shadow a straight up murderer. Yeah. Because... <laughs> I don't know why, because the character is such a dick throughout the entire film, but I think it's because of that childishness that we see earlier. Mm. And because he is clearly completely unhinged and completely gone mentally. Mm. I always feel a bit sad when he dies because, you know, he's not got all his faculties. Yeah. He's, he's, not, he's, not, not, he's not all there. And he's not in, yeah, he's not entirely deserving of that he, kind he, of stuff. No, no. And yet the main villain of the film survives mm. with almost perfect mental health. He's just simply stripped of his mental power. Yeah and sent to an asylum 
Which leads you to believe once he's declared sane, he can leave. Uh, but at the same time, he did try and drown him. Yes, that is true. But yeah. I thought he was under the control of Khan at that point. Because they even say to him, you're under Khan's control. You're under control of a warlord. I don't know. See, that's Although the, the, him as a character seems to think that he wasn't, so yeah, it's that, not very clear that part. That of it, said, anyway. he is a, like a sexual creep. Probably deserves to die. Yeah, yeah, yeah. of course, <laughs> <laughs> definitely. Yeah, the way he looks at her chest. Yeah, yeah. In the he's film, looking and, at her tits too much. Though he was coming, he and was, so obviously as well. I like the way he's talking to her, and he literally just like swivels his head down. Like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a strange moment because they set him up really well, and then he just disappears from the film for, for so quite much some of the time. Film, yeah. yeah, and he doesn't really come back into it until the moment where he's got to drown. Lamont Cranston. Yeah, well, I guess that's something to be said is that that character, even before he was under the mind control of Khan, he was a dick. Still. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I'm not going to lose much sleep. No, no. But at the same time, it makes the character of the Shadow much more interesting for doing that because it's a questionable moral thing. Yeah, why isn't there more of that in the film anyway? Yeah, yeah. That's why I originally did mention it because I want to say, I want to see more of that about the character where I'm not sure what to think about him. I want to be able to sit back and think about this character and question whether or not the ends justify the means. Mm. You know, in that same way that you do when you watch Dread or even Dirty Harry and stuff mm. like that, like uh, they get things done, but via extreme means. Extreme means they go a bit yeah. too far. Yeah. yeah, I'd love for him to like go a bit too far with his powers and get to the point where we almost kill someone and has to stop himself. Yeah. And it's always a constant battle of him trying to reel these things in and, and keeps himself disciplined and focused. Because it does tell us that Every now and again, the film does explicitly state that this character is dealing with that conflict at any point, but when he's actually in action. Yeah. We never see it in action. We see it no. in dreams. We see characters talk about it. He talks about it. We see it in visions, mm. but we never see it in action. That is never displayed in his super heroics. Mm. You know? I think the other thing we've got to talk about is his network of people. Oh, right. Well. His friends from the there's, Turkish bathhouse. Yeah, because there's this one thing where I'm just like had to say like there's a bit where a policeman investigating the murder of the guy who shot himself who was made yes. to shot himself he writes a, a note then puts it in a chute there's this long elaborate scene where the letter's going through the delivery chute yeah system goes all over the city i love that scene, scene goes to this guy who monitors all these things alerts the shadow via the ring yeah then the shadow has to travel to another place in order to get a television signal for him even to know what the original <laughs> note's about. And it just seems like the most elaborate and long-winded way of getting a message I've ever seen <laughs> yeah. in a film. It's like, ah. Oh. It would have been better. Like, it would have been good if actually that he never got that note, but the film continued as normal. And then somebody at the very end of the film went, I've got the note, I've got the note for you, sir. This just came in the mail. <laughs> it says there's trouble. <laughs> It just said, it felt so unnecessarily elaborate and, yeah. and long-winded. Yeah. Just um, text him. Yeah. <laughs> just text him, right? You know. Oh, that'd be good, wouldn't it, if the shadows, here's my number. He's got a television thing in his base, but why hasn't he got another television in his house? Yeah. And why isn't his base in his house like every other person's is? Yeah. But even, <laughs> even the fact that... Yeah, can you imagine it? Like, there is trouble afoot. I must change. And then he runs outside and has to grab the number 77 bus. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you again, yeah. Uh, why did I build my base halfway across town? <laughs> yeah. But even if you have to do that, have another television in your house so you can 
you know, see what's going on. Yeah. I mean, even Dick Tracy had a fucking telephone watch. So, I don't know. <laughs> it's not like this film is really tied down to the laws of... Reality. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Because <laughs> you think you'd be able to do it via mind control. I mean, that's the thing. The film never sets any... I mean, with the shadow and the villain, it never really sets any clear ground rules as to the extent of these guys' powers. Because at certain points, it makes them look like they're almighty and can yeah. do anything. And then at other points, they're relying on technology or yeah. other things to get them places. Especially the villain, because um, the villain seems like he can do anything and create some sort of cataclysm of his own accord. Yeah. And he's relying on the scientists to build an atomic bomb. Mm-hmm. And then also, his escape route is a plane. Yeah, yeah. Which is very mundane. It is. And I think we were saying earlier, this they set his character up as being able to do anything. Why can't he just fly? Just yeah. go the whole hog. Yeah. I imagine budgetary limitation yeah. might have stopped them. But I will say, in regards to the whole mind control thing, I do agree it is rather ill-defined. mm but there is a twist halfway through the film where a whole section of the film revolves around this one particular empty lot where uh, people yeah. keep returning to. Mm. At one point, Shi Wan Khan is chased by the shadow to this empty lot where he disappears. Yeah, the film just does keep returning to this lot and it's later revealed there is in fact a hotel there called the Hotel Monolith. Mm. And Khan has in fact hypnotized the entire city of New York into believing it was never completed and destroyed, and that it's mm. just an empty lot. I thought that was a great twist. Yeah. But at the same time, you are right, it makes him seem too powerful. That later on, when he doesn't have his powers to do other things, mm. you don't buy it. Because if you're making him more powerful, make him more powerful. Yeah. And have him a real threat, but it's almost like they didn't have enough money to do that. Yeah. Because really, the, the scientist characters and that whole atomic bomb thing were really kind of quite uninteresting and mundane yeah and again it was a complete waste of ian mckellen in that role it reminded me of something from adam west batman you know yeah everybody's seen that video of batman running down the pier in there <laughs> with a with a bomb yeah above his head he throws it into the sea mm. you know but yeah it reminded me of something from that especially when he started chasing it through the hotel i didn't mind that scene but it, it i don't know it felt out of place it, yeah, again, I, was yeah. Like, I don't really care about no. this no, and it didn't feel like, oh my god, it's going to go off. There's no threat there, yeah. No. The other thing, talking about this network of people that he was indebted to, we have this character of Roy, who's introduced at the start of the film, mm-hmm. who's uh, about to be bumped off, and it's kind of mentioned as an aside that he's worked at the museum or something like that. And then, when he needs to use them again, and he needs to identify this coin or bit of metal that he's come across during one of the battles yeah we get the age-old thing of the scientist who's uh, thought something was a myth uh, and then is suddenly an expert on it during the course of the scene yeah. <laughs> so we get this idea was it this metal called bronzium or something yeah. like that it's meant to have, the, the chinese believe to have formed the universe yeah but at the start of the scene it's like bronzium but i thought it was a myth and then during the course of the investigation which is the scene yeah we uh, get to know everything about this artifact and what it can do, what it can't do, and where it's what it's believed to be. And this guy just seems like an absolute expert on it. Yeah. So we know exactly what's going on. We get all the exposition, but... It's what we so, can't it's see just is... so funny. Underneath the table, he's got his phone out and he's Googled it. <laughs> it's just like, Bronzium, I thought it was a myth. He's looking down, just tapping it in. Ding, 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 ding. Unless he just said he thought it was a myth just to make himself look good later on. <laughs> but, um, Accidentally types in unobtainium. But, uh, yeah, it was like, I just wrote conveniently hypothesized. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
Bronzium. I've never heard of it before. Let me tell you about Bronzium. Mm. But at the same time, I'm like, why even have this metal? Because they're making an atomic bomb at the end of the day. Yeah, why not just have an atomic bomb? I forgot bomb, that uh, that was actually a thing in the film. It, it, it doesn't matter what no. metal they use to make an atomic bomb. No. I actually think that a lot of this film is well directed. It looks interesting. It's definitely an old Hollywood film. But it, it's an awful script really i think yeah i mean i started out by saying this that i like it and i do i like it because of so many elements in the filmmaking but i don't like the script really and the more i talk about it the more it's revealed that david corp really dropped the ball on this yeah because the villain's plot is really bullshit yeah we've got to ask a question as well when it comes to stuff like this we always say we always come down to blaming the writer but there are other people at play especially when it comes to writing a script that the author of the scripts isn't always the person that said exactly what goes into a script you got so many other forces at play producers contribute directors contribute even sometimes actors contribute yeah it just it's all channeled through this one writer and we know that david court went through many drafts of the script maybe this wasn't his strongest i'm not the biggest fan of david coep so i'm always inclined to leave him to blame yeah he's got a very rocky track record yes he has he's got some ups and then a lot of downs yes there are a couple of ups. Jurassic Park, for instance. But, I mean, you have to ask, how much work did Michael Crichton do in that first yeah, draft? Yeah, that's him rewriting somebody else's script. It's a f- different thing. You take The Lost World, for instance. A film I like, Yeah, but it's not got the best scripts in the no. world. And that's a pure David Co-op script. Yeah, and then uh, Indy 4. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which you've been reading the Frank Darabont script Yeah, for. it made me cry because it was, like, so much better. And I couldn't believe they it didn't is. use it. It's... Uh, Oh my god, it's so much better. I can't even begin to... Anybody who's interested in that film and, and thinks it's bad, I'd imagine quite a lot of you have probably read it. But um, if anybody's interested, definitely find and seek City of the Gods by Frank Darabont, because yes. it's amazing. Yes, it is. It's so much better. Yeah. But meanwhile, back to The Shadow. <laughs> well, we were talking about The Shadow. We were talking about David Cohen. Yeah, we were, so. yeah. That's going to be the subtitle to this particular episode. Yeah. But that's what I mean about the film being so slight, though. It never gets into depth with the shadow. There's no. no conflict there. The thing with the villain and the shadow is kind of interesting, but again, it's not played upon it's enough. It's all skirted around. Yeah. Uh, it's all, all of its, it's best all, ideas it's all are skirted around. Stuff. Yeah. And at the end of the day, the central plot, the villain's plot, is absolute bullshit. Yeah. And um, there's no stakes. There's no threat there. Yeah, you're kind of left at the end of the day going... What was all that about? Yeah. <laughs> sort of thing. So, I mean, even though there's positive elements to this film, it doesn't really add up to the sum of its parts at all. Again, uh, another missed opportunity would be with this character, the Shiwan Khan. If they want to set him up as having some kind of connective tissue with the Shadow in terms of him being trained by the same people that trained the Shadow, only he's turned out to be the evil version. Why not actually give them some history together yeah. some actual screen time together yeah. in that past world that they both clearly come from yeah well, having say, known uh... each other before oh uh, it's <laughs> that's what i say it's batman begins in seven minutes <laughs> it is yeah yeah you're absolutely right they've really just wanted to be batman yeah and they've wanted to do what Darkman and batman did and they're too busy trying to replicate that and in the process they've neglected to provide it with any kind of strong backbone a core mm. story yeah. and interesting characters yeah because there's no compelling plot there it's no. very pedestrian so final thoughts on the shadow i think we've talked about everything we really need to unless you've got any um yeah i mean final the, only, notes. the only thing we didn't talk about was the mirror room 
Oh, really? of course, yeah. I have a little trivia tidbit about the mirror room. Yeah. It was actually destroyed in an earthquake. <laughs> uh, so they had to actually rebuild it last minute. Yeah. But a lot of it is actually, uh, looks like it's been uh, superimposed anyway. Like it's been yeah. composited rather kind of crudely. So I guess they didn't have enough time to rebuild it. Yeah. Because I was thinking, yeah, the, the, the shoot for this wasn't incredibly long. It, well, yeah, it was a 60-day shoot, which for a yeah. film of this nature is quite short. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm just thinking in the grand scheme of things, the mirror room being destroyed in terms of Russell Mulcahy's experiences in the past yeah. probably seems quite small scale. Yeah. <laughs> when I you think about other things. And it is strange, like you say that they filmed it all on the Universal backlot and especially used it as like a tour piece at the time. Because I, I can imagine like the bus coming through the set as they're trying to film and the <laughs> guide's like, if you look to your left, you can see Alec Baldwin throwing away the rest of his career. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Yeah, because this is another one. This was really... I mean, Russell Mulcahy's career went downhill after this, but also Alec Baldwin's career as a a leading action man uh, yes. just dissipated after this film. Yeah, it did, as like a blockbuster action hero. Yeah, because after this, he kept playing like uh, villains or supporting roles yeah. and, and then went into television. You know what I say about that? Mm. Good, because it meant that he went on to be in roles such as... Uh, 30 Rock. Oh, yeah, yeah. Where he really got to explore his comedic side because mm-hmm. the, the guy's funny. Mm. And um, I prefer him. Yeah. I prefer him like that rather than as a, the action hero. Yeah. I mean, I like Jack Ryan. Yeah. I'll and always, the thing is about yeah. Jack Ryan is he's not an action hero. No. no. Is he an analyst or... Um... Yeah, he's like an analyst. But yeah, so I guess this is just another one of those famous missed opportunities. It's kind of all over the place. It's got a few good ideas that it just does not explore. And, well, yeah, it's just another one of those films, one of the many films that we've discussed. It falls in place with the likes of... Well, it's definitely right alongside The Phantom for a yeah. start. Yeah, it's just a lot of hot air. Yes, it is. Really, and it just goes pop like that. And then yeah. it's just... Yeah, there's no substance to it at all. And uh, it's a real shame because there's so much potential in that character and there's so much that you could do with that particular yeah. genre of filmmaking because it essentially is a a very much heightened film noir. Yeah. Very much in that sort of Sin City. Yeah, it is. And yeah. obviously they tried doing something like this with the, the spirit. Oh, gosh. Which, yeah, they, uh, did more, they, they tried yeah. to go more faithful too, like the shadow with the spirit. Yeah. And obviously fail spectacularly. But, Utterly. Yeah. But um, it does belong to that world and it's a shame that no one's really been able to do this character justice because yeah. I do genuinely think that the idea of this character is very interesting Yeah, and would make a good film but unfortunately this ain't it and to be honest as well there's no excuse for wasting that cast as no, well not at all I think Alec Baldwin is great casting for the shadow Yeah, and yet they disguise him for the whole film really when he is the shadow they rob us of that when you look at that cast on paper you're expecting a much better film than it actually yeah. is and they all play it very well. I think that's why I used to love it when I... I mean, I know why I loved it when I was a kid, and that's because of just how manic and anachronistic it is. It yeah. appealed to me because of that. But as I grew up, I think I just can't get past the script. Just the flaws of the script, and that, that's as far as I get, really. Yeah. And I, I do like it when I'm watching it. I like it scene by scene, mm. almost. There are some that obviously don't work. But yeah, I just as a whole, I just it's fallen down for me yeah yeah although there is one thing that the film teaches us which is don't believe cigarette adverts no because <laughs> they will fuck you up yeah They'll make you do things that you don't want to do they will make you build an atomic bomb definitely yeah <laughs> <laughs>
So on that note, I think it's fair to say we are beginning to understand why the shadow is but a shadow of its former self. Mm-hmm. But I think we need to turn to the stats and facts to find out some answers as to why this film has been forgotten. I mean, to discuss why it's been forgotten, we really have to go back to when it was forgotten. Yeah. So first up, we have the critical reception. Mm-hmm. So in terms of stats and facts for critical reception, we have the Rotten Tomatoes score, which gives it 35%, which I'd actually say is fair. It's a 4.6 out of 10. Yeah. I'd say about 40%, maybe. Yeah, I'd say it's a 40% for me. I enjoy enough of it to bump it up a touch, I'd say. Yeah. And its critical consensus says, bringing a classic pulp character to the big screen, the shadow features impressive visual effects, but the story ultimately fails to strike a memorable chord, which is true. Yeah. But yeah, I think the 4.6 out of 10 is closer Again, yeah. we keep seeing this, that the actual average rating is definitely closer yeah. to what the actual quality of the film is. Mm-hmm. And the IMDb was 6 out of 10, which is, again, I'd probably say that's a bit too high for this film. Yeah, I'd say, yeah, more about 5 out of 10. I can see why it is 6 out of 10, because like I say, if you can turn your brain off, if you can forget the story, mm. and you can really put out your head the potential of what it could have been, mm. to judge it as to what it is, it's still some enjoyable trash. True, and, I think there's, there's so much good potential that could have come out of this film that I yeah. think it's kind of definitely being judged harshly on those levels, which in a way I feel like, yeah, it should be because it didn't utilise that sort yeah. of material well enough. And Roger Ebert, although he kind of went on the other direction, he actually gave it three out of four. Yeah. And he says, The Shadow is the kind of movie that plays better the more baggage you bring to it. If you respond to film noir... If you like dark streets and women with scarlet lips and big fast cars with running boards, the look of this movie will work some kind of magic. (laughs) I think he's right definitely about the look of the movie. I think it does look really good, despite the fact it's clearly a Mm -hmm. backlot. But it does feel like a classic Hollywood movie. Yeah. Like they all were backlot movies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, But I don't know. I think I agree in that it works best when it's being a film noir. And I wish it was a straighter film noir about the shadow versus Mm. gangsters rather than it going utter schlock. Mm. So, yeah, I see what he's saying, but I think there's too much schlock in there mm. and with this, kind of with, mars the film noir. To be honest, with that review, I think there's a little bit of politics involved because I think he's um, trying to write a couple of wrongs that were done around uh, Highlander 2. <laughs> he was probably yeah. a, a bit too harsh on that film yeah. and um, was maybe trying to sort of make up for that fact, mm-hmm. especially when he probably learned about the production history of that yeah. film. But um, kind of it's a little bit unfounded. I'd expect more of a two out of four review from my yeah, review. Yeah, I, I would one. say so. Because Empire gave it three out of five. And they say, the film has a wonderful super production look and Baldwin's shadow breezes through via nifty invisible effects. But the plot never really gels. And for an action fantasy, is rather cold. I think that is a perfect summary, really, for me. It looks great. Alec Baldwin's fantastic as a shadow. He really works. But... Once you start looking below the surface, it's, there's nothing there. I think it's about right. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now we are going to move on to the box office. And before we say what the film made, I think we need to establish what the budget was. And that's a little bit harder with this with the shadow <laughs> because I have two budgets. The first up is the one that's listed on Wikipedia, which is forty million, and second is the one listed on IMDb, which is twenty-five, significantly lower, mm. almost half. So, the thing is, I can't imagine with Alec Baldwin at that time, considering the superstar that he was, 
it would be a cheap production. No. Just based on cast salary alone. Mm. I think he might have cost them a fair penny, really, mm. getting him in this role. So I'm inclined more to believe that it's the higher end than the lower. Yeah, I'm thinking maybe 25 was the original budget. And then yeah. <laughs> to 40 million once they cast everybody. Um, yeah, 20 of it going to Alec Baldwin. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely feels more like a 40 million budget. It does. Although I say that through sort of gritted teeth because it's like, yeah, it's 40 million, but. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. 40 million, but it's all backlot. It's yeah. not like they've had to pay for any locations or anything like that. Yeah. It's not like it's... they're jet setting across the world to, to shoot the film. Yeah, because some of the things look really good, and I do like some of the shadow effects that they've managed to achieve at the time. Yes. But then there's other things like some of the makeup effects and some of like you say that backdrop and yeah and it being a batlock film that's just really cheap in it you know which effect that i do really like is the knife yeah, yeah. i like the face on the knife yeah uh, it's clearly cgi but it almost feels like they could do it practically mm. it blends quite well for the time that it was made yeah because i wasn't quite sure whether it was like a a puppet like superimposed yeah. or not and like they'd done some sort of high speed photography on it mm, yeah yeah i was thinking that myself mm. But I think it was, in fact, CGI. Okay. Okay, so now that we've established the budget, we reckon it's the higher end of $40 million. Its domestic gross was $32 million, and um, overall, worldwide, it made $48 million. So, yeah, if we even take the $40 million side, it's, um, it's not a failure. It's not made the money they want it to make, mm. but it's, um, it's not shit the bed. It's uh, just kind of neither here nor there it's not going to make anybody enough money to although to be honest if it was that budget and that much gross i don't think it made anybody any money because no I know, no i know because this was a a franchise film they did put a lot of money into the advertising and quite a lot of money into merchandising like they had mm. actual action figures and board games and all that kind of rigmarole and when you do take time. that into account mm. And you approach the fact that it actually didn't even open to number one and it's open no. weekend. It opened to number two with 11 million. And here are some of the films that it opened up against. I mean, it couldn't have been a tougher weekend for it, really, in terms of it opening up against what was number one. Mm. And number one for that week was The Lion King yeah. in its third week. And that film just it went on to be the biggest animated film of all time in terms of box office gross. Well, I know what our audience is thinking, and that's that, well, that's an animated film. Mm. You know, there's another audience here. Adults want to go see an adult film. They want to go see an action film. Mm. Well, it also came out the same week as Speed, which was in its fourth week, and that was number three. So, mm. and that made just under, that still made 11 million, so yeah. it's just under. So, it's it's real tough competition. And then after that, you've got Blown Away, which opened the same week. I Love Trouble, which I've never heard of. <laughs> Wolf which is a film that I would love to cover on this mm. in this show, the Jack Nicholson star. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic Ennio Morricone score. White Earp, The Flintstones, Baby's Day Out, and Little Big League, a film I've never heard of. So that just gives you an idea of the films that are open against. It's actually really tough competition. Like you say, you've got The Lion King, you've got Speed, you've got White Earp, which I think it was a bomb, actually, White Earp, wasn't it? It didn't yeah. make as much money. But, I mean, even like... Baby's Day Out and The Flintstones. The yeah. Flintstones is an awful film, but it made a lot so of money. So Baby's Day Out. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> but with The Lion King and Speed, you're talking about two classics there in two different genres, but the huge, huge films. So, uh, it, yeah, it didn't really stand a chance. Actually, I'm looking at the list of films released at the time, 
And uh, Baby's Day Out isn't perhaps a success that I thought it was. It opened to 1,705 screens. And in its first weekend, it opened to ninth. <laughs> <laughs> With 4 million. Wow. So, yeah, that's a terrible film that opened terribly. Yay. Uh, you know? Hooray for justice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I think it's time for us to actually move over to the questions, and it's the yeah. questions we ask every single episode. I'm going to hand over to you first for this first one, and it's going to go back to me again. Mm-hmm. Okay, so are you any closer to understanding why the shadow has been forgotten? Yep. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've already discussed it. Yeah, I it, think it's just coming out at the time must have felt so derivative yes. to all the other things that were coming out at the time, yep. obviously, especially in Batman. And I even felt it at the time. I do remember the uh, the poster at the cinema. And I thought, that looks very Batman-esque. Yeah. It looks like... It reminded me of the poster for Batman meets the poster for Dick Tracy, like I said, right yeah, at the beginning of the podcast. About it. it definitely has a Dick, Dick Tracy, Tracy vibe yeah. to it as well. And it's like, yeah, it's not formed its own identity, even as a, a marketing campaign. No. But the main two things that it does wrong, it squanders its cast... Yeah. And it squanders its source material. It does. And um, for that, it's kind of unforgivable, really, because there is so much potential in both things. They could have come out with a much, much better movie. Even for a family market, they could have come out with a much better movie. Yeah. And um, they could have gone a little bit more edgy with it. It just um, it just becomes a big nothing in the end of the day. Yeah. I mean, like you say, it feels derivative even for the time that it came out. And it came out at a time when cinema was changing. Jurassic yeah. Park had only came out a few years beforehand and a new blockbuster was taken over Mm. and yet we had this sudden surge of these pulp films that very much felt like they were part of an old hollywood system that was long gone so even in that way it's both out of time it's derivative of other films and the worst one is that it skirts around its best ideas it's not even that it's so awful it's more so that like you say it just squanders Mm. what it has and every now and again, it gives you a glimpse of what it could be. Yeah. And then it goes back to being mediocre again. Yeah. And to use an old phrase, it's style over substance. Oh, completely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it seems to be Russell Mulkey's output to a T, really. Yeah. He's another director that he knows how to tell a story, but he doesn't know a good story when he sees one. No. I think he's got a really good visual sense, a keen eye. Because if he did have a good sense for story, he wouldn't have said yes to this script. No, not at all. Okay. So the next question is the shadow best of the forgotten or simply best forgotten i think this is a lot easier i actually yeah. thought i was going to be more conflicted coming into this episode even in my notes i've wrote a couple of like remember to talk about the good things <laughs> because it is an enjoyable film i'm sorry that i've swayed you over to the dark side well <laughs> i think it's just that i've seen better films since watching it i watched yeah. i watched it <laughs> and then i've watched better films in the week yeah. following and then when i returned to it to start like writing my notes yeah. i was like Oh, this isn't this isn't actually good. I've seen better films in a week. Yeah, yeah. And it's well, suddenly we, reframed yeah, the, uh, the film. Because this week I've watched Nashville. Yeah. And then I saw The Force Awakens and I watched this in between and then I watched another screening of The Force Awakens. So, uh, yeah, it's not really going to... Yeah. <laughs> it's not really going to have a chance in that. To, no, no, it's not, unfortunately. Not really. <laughs> so, yeah, I think it's fair to say this film is best forgotten best forgotten it has been forgotten and it perhaps should remain there i think it's got some fun elements and it's not gonna shit your bed but it's gonna tantalize you with what could be yeah it makes you wish that someone would make a decent adaptation of this material because it is quite strong material please yeah i would love to see Mm. a decent adaptation of the shadow 
Mm. I think we are ready for a couple of pulp films again. Definitely. Okay, and that's all we have time for on today's episode of Best Forgotten Movies. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at B4Movies, so please do get in touch with suggestions for possible episodes. Also, to help us continue to grow our fan base, please rate and subscribe to our podcast page found on the iTunes Store. Now, before we sign off, we need to inform our listeners that to allow Andy and I to continue producing this podcast whilst maintaining our lavish and exuberant lifestyles, Best Forgotten Movies will be switching to a bi-weekly schedule. That way, we can continue living a life of pure excess while dedicating more time to producing a higher quality podcast series. So, we will return in a fortnight's time with our next episode when we will be reviewing Lost in Space! It's pretty awful. Yeah. But until then, it's bye from myself and fuck off from Andy. But just before, just take a look at my beautiful boobs. <laughs> Happy New Year and thanks for listening. Yeah.